Good evening. It's good to see all of you. It's always a joy to be able to come worship here at Crimson Tees. And I want to thank Philip for allowing us to meet here again. Unfortunately, he's not able to be here with us this evening. Now, in your bulletin, you will you can take out two loose sheets there of paper, two loose sheets of paper. One would contain the reading from Isaiah and uh, Romans, which were read uh, to us earlier on uh, by Marion. And uh, we'll be spending quite a fair bit of time on the Romans passage. So it'll be good to have that in hand. And the other sheet is an outline for the sermon, uh, which would help you uh, follow along. You've just watched a snippet of the 1993 production of the Gospel according to Matthew. That was gory. Wasn't it the scourging, the crucifixion itself? Now, if you have a strong stomach, I think the movie The Passion of Christ, which was filmed a decade later by Mel Gibson, I think that depicts, I feel, an even more accurate and gruesome picture of what Jesus actually went through that day. I watched that a few weeks ago, and even for me, and I've seen quite a few real-life horrid scenes in my previous profession. I can tell you I needed even to cover my eyes for quite a fair bit, especially the parts when Jesus was uh, being whipped and then crucified on the cross. The cross was not something that people in the first century celebrated. Yet the cross is the core of Christianity. Why? It would be reasonable to ask, what's the big deal? One more crucifixion out of tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of criminals crucified under the Roman rule. We know, for instance, that on one single day in BCE 71, 6,000 people were crucified after the Spartacus rebellion was put down by the Romans. Now, if that many people have been crucified, what is one more person being crucified? Why is the crucifixion of Jesus such a big deal? Why is it important? One of the professors in my seminary used to remind us of this formula, and I think I've shared this before. Revelation is equal to event plus interpretation. Revelation equals to event plus interpretation. Our God wants to reveal to us His character and His plan for us. And He does this very often through events. And sometimes the meaning of the events uh, would be self-evident, but not always. Often you need an interpretation as well. Well, take for example, if you see the photo of a group of guys breaking down a wall, you might think it's just a bunch of guys perhaps Probably they had a bit too much to drink and they were vandalizing the war in a public place. But if Samuel, our resident historian, comes and explains to us that that is the picture of the first stretch of the Berlin Wall that was being torn down in 1989. Now the picture takes a totally different meaning, doesn't it? That event captured by the photo is now infused with profound meaning once it is interpreted for us that way. And our passage 
today in Romans 3 does exactly that. This six verses from verses 21 to 26 provides us with an interpretation on why the event of the crucifixion of one man out of so many, why that's a big deal. But it presupposes that we understand what is the most important problem that we grapple with today. And so if I will ask all of you, what do you think is the most important problem that we need to tackle today? What would your answer be? Or perhaps you may say, well, isn't it obvious? It's the war that's happening right now in Ukraine. Or perhaps inflation. Or poverty. The environment. Maybe climate change. Or perhaps an increasingly polarized society. And we just have that lack of unity amongst Canadians nowadays, isn't it? Homelessness. What about that? And perhaps maybe for pastors, declining church membership and maybe the pandemic. I think those are all good answers. But as Christians, as we read the Bible, I think the answer to the question, what do you think is the most important problem that we need to tackle today, must surely be the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And that's the God's wrath over our sins. While you may be wondering, what's God's wrath got to do with anything? And isn't a Christian God the God of love? And what's my sin got to do with anything? I'm a good person. I don't sin. Really? Well, that's not how God sees it. Because our God has a very different view about what it means to be good and what sin is. You see, sin is essentially about going against God's will, either by doing what He forbids or failing to do what He requires. And that's what we confess each week together, isn't it, as a church? And that's what the first two and a half chapters of Romans leading up to chapter 3 have been telling us. The message is clear. We've all sinned. No exceptions. Why? Because we all know full well what God's will is for us, whether through His Word or through creation, His creation, or even through our conscience. And we ignore it. You see, God's created us, we belong to Him, but we don't recognize His Lordship over us. We don't recognize His sovereignty over us. From God's point of view, we are rebels, rebels against God. We have dethroned Him from our lives. We want nothing to do with Him. We have committed cosmic treason. And so we should not be surprised to find that God is angry with us. We humans have become objects of God's wrath. And that is a very fearful place to be in. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, 19 summarizes that well for us. Let me read for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. In our passage today, that was just read, verses 22-23, we read, And for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a few chapters on, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we are told clearly what is the outcome of that wrath. 
for the wages of sin is death. And that is eternal death, eternal separation from God. Now, I want to be careful when I use the word wrath here. You see, we all have a certain image in our minds when we think of the word wrath, right? Perhaps you picture in your mind uh, a road rage, right? Someone who's red in the face over a minor incident and trying to run another person off the road. Or perhaps you may have memories of your school principal. And I'm thinking of those of us from a much older generation. When it's common for school principals back then to demonstrate their wrath, perhaps to your schoolmates, by caning them uh, because they were caught smoking, for instance, in a washroom. Well, I think you can get away with caning in those days, in the 60s and 70s, maybe not so much today. Or perhaps you remember the wrath of your father when he gets that call from your school principal who caught you smoking in the washroom. But whatever it is, it's probably not a good representation of God's wrath. So it's important for us not to equate God's wrath with human wrath. Human wrath is often sinful, but God's wrath is never sinful. Our, our, God's, he, our God, He doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't kind of fly off the handle. And because God loves all that is right and good, we shouldn't be surprised that He would hate everything that is opposite of what is right and good. In fact, someone defines God's wrath as his indignation at sin, his revulsion to evil, and all that opposes him, his displeasure at it, and the venting of that displeasure. It is his passionate resistance to every will that is set against him. You see, God intensely hates sin. As I was saying, because God loves all that is right and good, we shouldn't be surprised that He would hate everything that's the opposite of what is right and good. In fact, someone defines uh, God's wrath as His indignation at sin, revulsion to evil and all that opposes Him, His displeasure at it, and the venting of His displeasure. It is His passionate resistance to every will that is set against Him. You see, God intensely hates all sin. And his wrath is a result of his holiness and justice. It is also the outworking of his love. Because, you see, the opposite of wrath is not love, but indifference. Failure to hate evil implies a deficiency in love. We can pretty much understand that, can't we, intuitively? I mean, if someone were to hurt, hurt my wife physically, you can expect that I'm not going to be indifferent to that. Uh, he, can, he can expect my wrath, right? And so the number one problem for the world today is how can we be saved from God's wrath? How can we avoid becoming objects of God's wrath and suffer the punishment that comes along with it? And our passage today provides us with the answer to how this problem can be solved. <coughs> well, look with me at verse 21. Until now, until this passage starting in verse 21, Paul's been describing how although we knew God, we have not given Him a rightful place in our lives. And as Paul puts it in chapter 1 verse 21, we did not honour Him as God or, or give thanks to Him. We want to live our lives our own way. You know, like Frank Sinatra said, you know, that, that singer, you want to be able to say, I did it my way. Right? 
And even for those of us who recognize the existence of God, in particular Jewish people that uh, Paul was writing to as well, we see another problem. The Jewish people as well as, in fact, believers of uh, other religions, we're all trying to earn a salvation through the keeping of the laws, whether it is by obeying the Mosaic law or the laws of the land or conscience. But that just doesn't cut it for God. We just can't do it. We just can't ever do enough to satisfy God's holy standards. And Paul is saying, until now, that we have been trying to get right before God by doing good deeds and so on. We have been trying to earn our righteousness through our own effort. But that has not worked. Because we are both sinful by nature and sinful by choice. And God's standard is sinlessness. We are to be without sin. But we have all sinned and we will all continue to sin. Nothing we can do will change that. So even if you promise that from this moment on, when you leave this service this evening, you will not sin, it's still not enough because of all your previous sins. Well, think about it. Imagine if you walk past a grocery shop on your way to school or to work. And as you walk past, you would steal an apple each day, right? To chom along the way. And this happens for a whole year. And then one day, because you heard uh, a sermon on Romans 3 uh, from Roger, you, you felt convicted. And then you decided, you know what, I'm going to stop stealing from now on. In fact, you do better than that. You will go to the shop owner and you, you'll confess and say, I'm so sorry that I've been stealing your apples every day for a year. And I promise I won't do it again. What do you think the shopkeeper will say? Well, I'm sure he'll be glad for your confession. But because apples cost about a dollar each, well, with inflation, he'll ask for $365 from you, isn't it, for the whole year, for the payment of all the apples that you stole. And so you can decide from this evening onwards not to do anything bad or, or to sin. And even if you're able to do that, you still have to contend with all the wrongdoings that you did in the past. And God knows that. He knows it is an impossible situation for us. We can't ever meet God's standards. And that's why it's so wonderful to hear those two words. But now. Some theologians call those two words at the start of verse 21 the most important words in the Bible because it marks the turning point of where Paul was going on with his argument. It's almost like you know, a doctor telling his patient that all the treatments that he has received over the years for his sickness had not been effective and he was going to die soon but now he tells the patient with the latest breakthrough in research a new cure has been found that will guarantee a hundred percent recovery now you can imagine how overjoyed that patient must be how relieved right this is good news and that's exactly what paul expects how we should feel about those two words but now because a new way has been provided apart from obeying the law which we've not been able to do anyway right a new way apart from the law and this is good news and in a sense while this is good news it is not new news right because as we are told in verse 21 the law and the prophets bear witness to it and that's the old testament the law and the prophets and we've already got hints of that haven't we the isaiah passage that you heard read earlier on that was a huge 
signposts pointing to the new way. And what is this new way? Verse 22. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And what is this righteousness? It is the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of men and women. This is the righteousness, righteousness that we obtain by faith in Jesus Christ. It is for all who believe. No distinction. It is an offer open to all. Because all have need of it. Because all have sinned and fall short of God's standards, God's glory. And so we are justified. Which means we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Not by our own efforts, but by the grace of God. Our sins are completely forgiven and we are no longer liable to punishment. It is a gift. An unmerited favour. You can see that in verse 24. And this is made possible because of the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. You see, to have redemption, to be redeemed, is to be freed. Freed from the power of sin, freed from the punishment of sin, and one day when Jesus comes again, free from the presence of sin, we can be free from slavery to sin. And how does Jesus do that? Look at verse 25. Jesus' blood. That's how. The blood of Jesus served as the propitiation. Blood in the Bible almost always means death. And it is Jesus' death that served as a propitiation. Now, I know that's a big word, propitiation. What does it mean? Propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. Like one of my kids, for instance, you know, they break one of my neighbor's windows. Well, my kid may well offer to mow the um, neighbor's lawn for three months, right, to turn the neighbor's wrath away. That's propitiation. His offer to do that, to mow the lawn. And let me unpack why this is important. You see, because we can't save ourselves, because we can never earn enough righteousness to satisfy the just demands of a righteous God, of a holy God. Because sinful men and women just cannot come into the presence of a holy God as long as they're sinful. Because of that, God has to find a way for us. But the penalty for sin is death. We saw that earlier in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. And this is eternal death, eternal separation from God. And this is what we deserve. This is the consequence of incurring the wrath of God. And the penalty for our sins must be paid. And because God is just, He cannot not require us to pay the penalty. And the penalty is paid by means of a propitiation, a gift offering that can remove, that can turn away God's wrath. And so the question is this, how can God be just and holy? Because we know that's His character. How can God be just and holy and yet not make us pay for our sins? Well, the answer, by making someone else pay on our behalf. And that's called penal substitution. Penal substitution. What's that? What penal, like in penalty, right? Substitution is the replacing of someone. Well, think of a soccer game, or, or if you are from Europe, you know, a football game. Often when a player is injured or, or not playing very well uh, that day, the coach will bring in a substitute to replace the player. The substitute will then take the place of the player who leaves the field, uh, and, and that's substitution. 
So you put the two words together, penal and substitution, and what it means is this, that Christ in his death bore the just penalty of God for our sins as a substitute for us. So for penal substitution to work, two things must happen. Well, firstly, the payment of the penalty must satisfy the just demands of a holy God. And we know what that requires. Because if the penalty is death, then the death of a human is required. It must be human because it is human sin that we're trying to propitiate God for. Well, much as I love my dogs, they can't be a suitable substitute for me. And secondly, if the substitute is to be able to pay the penalty for the sins of all humans, past, present and future, in order for it to be offered to all, because God is offering this to all, right? The life of this substitute must be of infinite value. And as such, to be a suitable propitiation for God, for the sin of all humans, the only option is for a God-man to do it. Someone who is fully human, so he can represent all of us. Someone who is fully God, so that his payment has infinite value, enough to cover the sins of all who would avail themselves of this option. And this is the doctrine of penal substitution. Christ, the God-man, in his death, bore the just penalty of God for our sins as a substitute for us. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us when he hung on the cross and died. And that is the interpretation for the event that I just watched a few moments ago. The God-man died the death that we deserve. His death was the propitiation that turned God's wrath away from sinful humans so that those who receive by faith this gift of redemption will not have to face the wrath of God. Well, if you look with me again at verse 25, we skip over the first few words and went straight to explain the phrase propitiation by His blood. What we didn't touch on were the words whom God put forward, whom God put forward at the start of the verse. And why am I stressing this point? I grew up in a Taoist household, Taoism, right? And every year during the festive periods, my mom would cook some of the best dishes, chicken, pork, which we actually can't afford uh, to eat usually. And then she would buy some fruits. And together, this will be offered to the gods that were being worshipped. It could be a kitchen god, it could be a god of wealth, and, and so on. And the food will be placed on the altar where the idols of the gods were placed. And the idea is that these offerings would serve to appease the gods, to appreciate them, to make them happy, um, so that they could bring good fortune to the household. And you see these altars today in many of the you know, more traditional Chinese households, in, both in Singapore and other parts of East Asia. And herein lies the big difference between Christianity and many other religions. You see, for most religions, the propitiation is provided by humans to the gods that need to be propitiated. And that was what my mom was doing. She was offering food on the altar of the gods. But in the case of Christianity, God is the one providing the propitiation. And that's why that phrase at the end of verse 24, beginning of verse 25, is important. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
God provided the sacrifice needed and Jesus was that sacrifice. He was crucified and died so that we don't need to be. He stood in our place. And that's what penal substitution is all about. You know the song we just sang a moment ago, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. Verse 2 describes this exactly what I've just said. And let me read for you. What thou, my Lord, had suffered was all for sinner's gain. My mind was the transgression, but thine the daily pain. And Paul mentioned earlier in our Romans 3 passage that the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the it being penal substitution. Look at Isaiah 53, for instance, a passage I was just read uh, earlier on, verses 5 and 6. And you have that passage in your handout. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's why Jesus came to die. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was sent to earth to die in our place, willingly to pay the price that we could not pay, to be our substitute. That's why it's good news. That's why it's called the gospel. That's what the gospel means, good news. Paul then writes in verse 25, All this is to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Now what does this mean? Because God is a holy and just God, He cannot just wave a magic wand and, and, and say, Hey, you know what? It's okay. Don't worry about your sins. I'm cool with it. Come, come into my presence. No, because He's a holy and just God, justice must be done. The penalty must be paid. And Jesus paid it on the cross. But what is it about this God passing over former sins? Well, what Paul means is that when Jesus paid the penalty for all who put their faith in Him, it obviously applied to people both in His generation as well as for future generations like ours. But more than that, what Jesus did on the cross was also sufficient to pay for the generations before Jesus. For people like, for instance, you know Abraham, right? Now, how is that possible? How could a righteous God overlook or pass over their sins when people like Abraham committed them, since at the time that they committed it, Jesus hadn't yet died for their sins? Well, the answer is that God could do that because of what He knew Jesus was going to do. Well, think about it. This is what happens when, for instance, you buy a television from Best Buy, right? And you pay your credit card. You haven't paid the merchant, which in this case is Best Buy, and all you have done is to make a commitment to pay when your credit card uh, bills come due later in the month. And I certainly do hope that you do pay your bills on time because the interest rates are just not worth it. Well, anyway, when you bought the television, you haven't paid a single cent. But you've already got to bring it home, enjoy your latest episode of Korean drama, uh, um, just like Abraham did. In the same way, Abraham was enjoying the benefits of having his sins forgiven or passed over because of his faith in God. Because God has committed to provide the sacrifice needed for the propitiation. It will come at a future time. And Abraham believed that. 
And that's why I remember that phrase, and it was credited to him for his righteousness. Bottom line is this. Our God is a righteous God, whether it is regarding sins committed before the time of Jesus or during the time of Jesus or for generations after Jesus. He is a just God. And because He's provided the propitiation needed to satisfy the rightful wrath against sin, He's also the justifier. As verse 26 puts it, God did all this to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the wrath of God is our problem and the Son of God is our solution. How then should we respond? Well, if you turn to page 4 of your bulletin, you'll find a passage on the Passion from Matthew 27, which we watched earlier on, right? And there you see some of the responses from those witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus. And let us consider some of them, because I believe that some of the responses will help us to evaluate ours. Well, first of all, are you like the soldiers? Because for them, the crucifixion is just another day's job. Uh, they go about life, just getting from one day to another. They just want to get on with their jobs. Their job's busy enough. And if there's anything that might provide a bit of excitement or distraction from their day-to-day job, well, they happily indulge. Like a spot of fun, you know, just mocking the man to be crucified. Or like drawing lots to decide who gets the condemned man's clothes. But don't ask them about the larger questions of life. Like, what is their purpose in life? Or how do they decide what is right and wrong? Nah, those questions don't interest them at all. That's the soldiers. Or are you like, perhaps, the religious leaders? They're confident that they know how to reach God. They are religious, after all. And they do all the necessary things to get right with God. They pray. They fast, they give to the poor. But you know what? In their religiosity, they end up being the very ones who plotted to kill the Son of God. Or are you like Pilate? You know what needs to be done. You know the right thing to do. But hey, it's more important that you are well-liked by the people around you. And so you give in to culture. You give in to peer pressure. It's not cool to be seen with a Bible on my desk in the office. It's, it's awkward to share the gospel with my classmates or, or my colleagues when they rather talk about the latest movie in town, right? It, it's, it's hard to be at church on Sunday mornings when everyone is partying late into the wee hours of the morning on Sundays. So we kind of sort of try to do the minimum in terms of getting by and in terms of growing our faith. And we sort of try not to stand out with regard to our faith. Now, does that describe you? Or lastly, are you like the one who actually, it's not in our passage, uh, because we stop at verse 50, and that's why in the uh, snippet we went on to verse 54. Because in verse 54, what you saw was the Roman centurion who saw everything happened. What happened on the cross? And we're told he was filled with awe. And his response, he uttered, Truly, 
this was the Son of God. And as we reflect over this, um, this Good Friday, my prayer is that we will be like the Roman centurion. We will be filled with awe as we remember what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. And we will confess again that Jesus is the Son of God and put our faith in Him and worship Him. That's a comment strip. You, you have it in your handout. Two men chatting. The first man says, I hate the term Good Friday. And the second man asked, why? And then the first man answered, well, my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. And then the second man asked, if you were going to be hanged on a tree that day, and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? The first man said, good. And the second man walked away saying, well, have a nice day. In the solemnity of this day, and it is a solemn day, let us not also forget what good news this is, that Jesus died on the cross for our sake 2,000 years ago. Let the gravity of the event match also the gladness that it happened. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.